0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Our world is always so rush, rush. We can never get any personal time to ourselves, let alone those that we love. Welcome to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. Our mission to reintroduce kindness and compassion to our busy lives. Remember when life was so much simpler? Gabriella and her guests today will pick up the ball of human kindness and by doing so, empower you to make changes in your own life. And now, here is Gabriella Von Ray.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another show of Might Radio. And today's topic is turn up your personal talent to earn the trust of others. And we have a very interesting guest with a lot of past history. And his name is Dennis Henrik. Thank you for being on the show, Dennis. I'm really excited to have you because when I talked to you uh, previous to the show, your background is really amazing. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background because it's so diverse? Okay.
3: Okay. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, it's best to uh, say that I've been a member of two extreme organizational cultures, Mm -hmm. extreme in the sense that uh, uh, individuals will readily, you know, sacrifice their life for others, and uh, one of those was uh, in the fire service where I spent 24 years, and the second is in the combat military where I spent... uh, almost 30 years. I've also been a member of two somewhat unique cultures, that of being a teacher and of being a a university instructor and a Ph.D. candidate, and I say unique in the sense of uh, the level of work autonomy afforded uh, those occupations. And I've also been uh, the owner of several small businesses.
2: But that's quite a career there. Is there anything that you feel that you would like to tell our listeners about um, the military? Because for us, it's always, I, I respect the military, and not being American, I know your military in the United States is huge. And it is kind of a mystery for us to understand what it is like to be part of the military, and to put your lives on the line for others.
3: Yeah. uh, Well, I started my military career right after high school, uh, and that was during the Vietnam War. And uh, that was uh, in the Air Force. And when I uh, left the active duty Air Force, I enlisted in uh, the Air Force Reserve and uh, ended up uh, in what we call the close air support business. And basically, okay. uh, we work with the Army, and uh, uh, we send uh, two-man teams up to the front lines, and uh, they control the airstrikes.
2: Okay. What, what does that mean, though, for us? You, you, okay. th- you s- Tell me a little bit more so that I understand it better.
3: Okay. Uh, basically, uh, these two-man teams work with uh, the Army units they're assigned to, and uh You know, like in the shows, they laser targets, and they talk to the airplanes, and, uh, you know, the pilots bomb the targets. And uh, these are usually, you know, uh, like I said, uh, they're two-man teams, and, uh, you know, they can be all, you know, as young as 20 years old doing this stuff. And uh, so they have to be, you know, highly trained and, you know, committed, you know, to the mission.
2: Wow, amazing. But that takes a lot of um, communication skills and teaching skills, doesn't it, For, on your part?
3: Uh, yes, it does. Uh, you know, while we uh, rely on, you know, the framework that the, uh, you know, the military provides us in instruction, it's mm-hmm. difficult, you know, to instill that identification and the commitment, you know, uh, at that level. And, you uh, you know, we, you know, we tried to do the best that we can and, uh, uh, fortunately, uh, in our unit, a lot of, you know, young people really stepped up and really did outstanding work, you know, in Afghanistan. Yeah.
2: Amazing. And that basically prepared you for what you do today.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> what occurred was, uh, Oh, in the 80s, uh, 1980s, uh, the Department of Defense adopted this uh, uh, total quality management uh, uh, from uh, the Deming model, and uh, mm-hmm. in the year, early 1990s, we were trained in that. And uh, a lot of people, you know, I uh, guess, you know, uh, poo-pooed, poo-pooed it, and uh You know, silly us, we actually adopted it, and it really worked well for us. And uh, basically, the idea of that total quality management is empowerment down to the individual level.
2: Why is it empowerment?
3: Well, uh, for us, it's these, uh, you know, two-man teams, and uh, we can't be there with them all the time holding their hands, so they have to really develop you know, their personal skills and their personal talent to do that outstanding work. You know, it's, uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, bombing the bad guys and, you know, you know not the good guys. And uh, every situation is different. Every environment's different. So uh, the total quality management, you know, style really helped us in, in you know, doing that.
2: Okay. And the... That basically got you into something called CoolWorks, right?
3: Yeah. Uh, when we were doing this, um, we didn't know what we were doing, basically. And uh, the, what we did, we adopted a few sacred and shared values, you know, that we didn't compromise. And uh, all of a sudden, everybody started, you know, really working these, uh, these ideas. And like I said, we didn't know what we were doing. We were making it up as we went along and, uh, guys would come up with different ideas and some of them weren't that good. So, you know, we just came up with this idea. Well, we only do cool and, uh, cool was, uh, if it, if it followed these, these values, then it would work. If it didn't, and if, you know, individuals, Brought their personal ego into the equation. of uh, that is what we called stupid. And, uh, as it gathered momentum, everybody wanted to put their foot into that Cinderella slipper of doing cool. And that's, of course. Uh,
2: yeah. it's nicer cool. to be cool than stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but tell me a little bit about the values though.
3: Okay. Yeah. The value um, that
2: went with being cool.
3: Yeah, uh, basically, our values, we uh, just came up with a couple of assumptions. And uh, the first assumption was uh, the foundation for our framework was that our organization was a civil society. Mm-hmm. you know, And each person had certain responsibilities and duties. But then we also had to let them be themselves. And uh as a goal for the framework, uh uh members, you know, uh had to share a a strong obligation and responsibility for the common good. Yeah. And by by that is since we were Air Force, we were always working with the Army. So we pretty much had to adopt the Army mindset of how how they did business. And uh, support for this commitment to our goal and the common good uh, would, you know, rest on professional conduct and leadership at all levels. You know, okay. and uh, the military is noted for rank and position and stuff like that. So everybody had to be a leader. And,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, you know, this was what I called self-leadership, this commitment and mm-hmm. uh the third assumption was support for the commitment uh would rest on uh, military bearing and professional conduct and okay. this professional conduct and military bearing it, it was kind of fuzzy for us and uh the last assumption was that uh you know organizational members you know desired good jo- they want to do good work You know, and this was basically, uh, possess the right commitment, the right knowledge, skills, and ability, and act rightfully. And the support areas is what my book, you know, Professionalism 101 is about. It's trying to clear up this fuzziness, this abstract concept of professionalism, professional conduct, that
2: type of thing. But uh, it's it seems amazing to give someone a framework that they can um, feel part of, of an organization and to feel the commitment. And I think most people have a hard time excelling, and that comes basically to the title of this show where you say that we can turn up our personal talent. And you your framework, if I understand it correctly, of cool – being cool is to excel, to, to know that we all have an inherent something inside of us that can make us excel, right?
3: Uh, that's correct. You know, basically, uh, And not be robots. I'm, basically what I am advocating is a, a, a new type of work model, which I call the talent equation.
2: Yes. Tell and, us about that.
3: Okay. Uh, Basically, uh, it's made up of task work, and I'll explain each of these as we go along, uh, plus full person work, plus professional work, which is what uh, I add to the piece, and that equals talent work. And task work is, uh, well, I guess the best example would be that when we join an organization, uh, mm-hmm we often go in there and say, well, what do you want me to do, and how do you want me to do it?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And we end up getting, you know, stuck in this, uh, you know, doing tasks, this idea yep. of just doing tasks. And uh, we're evaluated on how we do those tasks. And there's a couple of different types of tasks in my book.
2: Okay. Okay.
3: I have uh, what I would refer to as uh, pivotal and necessary tasks. These are, you know, absolutely necessary to do. Uh, then you have desirable tasks, but they're unnecessary. And then you have tasks that are unnecessary and totally irrelevant, okay? So what I want to do is focus on the pivotal and necessary tasks. And okay. try to eliminate the unnecessary tasks.
2: Okay. Give, me, give me one example in the professional field of people in doesn't matter what their job would entail, that is a unnecessary task that we perform though.
3: Okay, uh, okay. Let's say, uh, uh, well, we, we all get caught up in time, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, uh, oh, when we go to work, we're on the clock. And it's filling all this time with tasks. And a lot of the management style uh, is focused on keeping people busy. <laughs> you know, and uh, a story from the firehouse is uh, oh, uh, we had uh, down at Central Station uh, a, a young lieutenant, and he was called the pusher. And basically, uh since that's where uh fire department administration was, everybody had to be moving all the time. So they would create tasks for us to do to keep moving. <laughs> you know, and, you know, we'd wash windows. We'd do pretty much anything and everything, whether it needed to be done or not.
2: Yeah. Okay. Was, was that done to fill up time, what I call – just being there at an office or at any type of job? Do we do that just to fill up the time?
0: Uh,
3: A lot of people think that, you know, and a lot of managers concentrate on that. You know, if you're not busy, you're loafing, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, it's not really loafing. It's really, you know, uh, not being engaged in the work, you know, now that... uh, being engaged in the work is when talent really shows. You know, you, you're you focused, you know, you're learning, you're growing, and uh, things are getting done, and they're getting done well.
2: But for, for me, as someone who has worked all my life, you know, we take a job, first of all, because we have to, right? We have to bring money in. And do we really know that we have the talent, that we have an innate something to bring to the job, to bring to the task. I I feel that nobody ever teaches you that. And that's what's so interesting about your book, is that you're willing to go the length to say to people, you have that talent to bring to the job and to excel.
3: Yeah. I I think that, uh, you know, uh, like I said, when people, you know, begin work, you know, in an organization, they get stuck in these tasks, and uh, that brings up, you know, the second part of the equation, which is whole person work.
2: Okay, um, what is part? And,
3: and this is, uh, you know, the unique quality, you know, that individuals bring, you know, to their workplace. You know, okay. this is their, uh, you know, their personality factors. Their general me- general mental ability, you know, their what they call their outside self. They bring in, you know, their outside life into the equation also. Mm-hmm. And oh,
2: they do. you know, yeah.
3: and this this is, you know, the whole person. They're bringing, you know, their whole self into the equation. You know, and uh, we can think of it as just being, you know, okay. Who are we can, the, sorry? Who I they didn't are. hear
2: you. We can what? Uh, Pardon me? Could you repeat just that last sentence because I didn't hear that correctly.
3: Okay. Yeah. uh, This whole person work is, you know, uh, this is the part that makes us unique and diverse. You know, and everyone is influenced by different people in our lives, um, different ideas that we've been exposed to.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: And, uh pretty much, you know, all our experiences. And this is what makes us unique and diverse. And this is, you know, what organizations need, you know, to innovate, to grow, to create.
2: But what if you don't get a chance? What if you have a job that where you bring the desire to actually bring some innovation to the job and you're stifled because they just want you to perform the task at hand and not be creative. What do you yeah. do then in a the job? You, you, you tried several times, I know, because I have, I'm speaking of experience here and then you're totally stifled because they won't let you do it. How, yeah. how do you deal with that when a manager doesn't want to do that?
3: Okay. Uh, that is, uh, you know, like you said, you know, those are, you know, stifling situations, and, uh, you know, that is a management problem. Uh, what an individual can do is to, you know, pick up this uh, professional work piece, which I describe in the book, you know, the, okay. and basically seven dimensions, and practice those really well, and... If they practice them really well, uh, everyone will start to trust them more. And if you're trusted, you're allowed to do other things. You know, it's like you're counted on, you know? and, So So are,
2: are you teaching in the book that if you stick to the seven dimensions, which I want to hear about after the commercial break, but if you stick to it, no matter how stifling the management is, you can get through?
3: Uh, pretty much. You know, you can satisfy yourself, you know, okay. knowing, knowing that you are doing professional work. You know, a lot of people don't do these, you know, seven dimensions. And in my studies, uh, the professionals do actually do these better than what I call the semi-professionals and the non-professionals. Okay. So it's like, okay, I've got these seven dimensions. This is how I will work. You know, I can still do tasks, the pivotal and necessary tasks, and I mm-hmm. still can be my personality, my unique, you know, uh, personality into the equation, but I'll focus on these seven dimensions, and my work will be really good, and people will have faith in, you know, uh, my performance. Okay. So in a sense, it's self-satisfying
2: yes of course if 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 we can if well, without your book and the framework, there wouldn't be we we would be in a situation where we would't really handle it <clears throat> would you, yeah, would you I, say that that's correct
3: I think that uh you know along those same lines, I think that we're we're pretty much making it up as we go along. We don't know how to do really good work, what I call exceptional work.
2: But to do exceptional work, you need to know, first of all, that you have it in you, and to have the confidence to go out there and then do it.
3: Yeah, you know, and... uh, And that's
2: sorely lacking in many people, including myself, to, to say you have the confidence, you can do it, just keep going.
3: Yeah, you know, and the confidence, well, what I've done is, like, these seven dimensions help people gain the confidence, you mm-hmm. know, in doing, you know, professional work.
2: Okay. And when, when people buy your book, um, is it self-explanatory that they could literally follow every dimension themselves, or would they need what I would then call a workshop from you within the structure of their company? Or can okay. they do it by themselves?
3: Okay. Uh, when I originally wrote the book, I had, uh, focused on my three studies. Mm -hmm. And when I would finish a topic, I would send them to, you know, uh, I think there were about nine people that I would have them read it and they'd give me comments on it. And, uh, one of the, one of the uh, people asked me, well, how do you do it? (laughs) And that was like, oh boy, okay. And, uh, anyway, uh, I created a third topic uh in addition to that and that's uh, basically what i call trust building okay. and it's by no means everything but it is a lot okay and it's basically how to do these seven dimensions and uh, it's a small minutiae of what's available out there
0: okay. they can
3: know uh, i've, I've tried to, you know, eliminate a lot of the tedious prose, and the book is more graphic than it is prose, so that there are, uh, I guess it's easy, more easily followed than just reading text.
2: Okay. Yeah, I've, I've seen your book. I, I agree. That it's very explanatory. But I can imagine that a lot of people would read it and would want your explanation, not only because you're the author, but because you have conceptualized the framework. So they would want the addition of you showing uh, examples within the workforce that they could use to implement.
3: Yeah, I tried to provide some, you know, personal examples, plus uh, Mm -hmm. examples by uh, academics, you know, the the book is a uh, mainly academic work of academics, but it's presented in a style where everyone can read it and follow through it.
2: When did you finish writing the? When apart- was when did you finish writing it, and how long did it take you? I'm just curious.
3: Well, I started studying it back in the '90s when we were. Constructing this we-only-do-cool uh, culture, and uh, I started uh, to take MBA classes at the University of Iowa, and they weren't answering what I was looking for. And uh, one of the professors told me that uh, they study organizations and occupations and work over in the sociology department. So I went over there to pick their brain, and uh, uh, next thing I know, I'm in a Ph.D. program. Uh, I studied my work, my research, for uh, four years, and then uh, found that I couldn't write my dissertation on it because it was such a large topic. Mm-hmm. That I would have to write a dissertation on one small piece of it. And I felt that since I was gaining an age, that uh, I would uh, withdraw from the program and write the book. And I started writing in uh, uh, 2009 and uh, finished it, oh, I, th- I think a year, year and a half later.
2: Oh, that's pretty fast. But that's also because you had the experience already, right?
3: Yeah, and basically I just had to uh, put it all together. I had all these different pieces that I needed to fit into a framework, and I believe that the framework works now.
2: Super. Listen, this is a perfect moment to go into commercial break, and then when we get back, we will talk about the seven dimensions.
5: Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, on the 7th Wave Network.
4: Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family caregivers unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. will provide you with a social networking experience.
1: tuned in to might radio do you have a question or comment for our show perhaps you wish to share your own stories of human kindness please send an email to gabriella von ray at gmail.com that's g a b r i e l l a v a n r i j at gmail.com now back to might radio with
2: gabriella von ray hi everyone and uh, if you're just tuning in to this show we the show is about turn up your personal talent to earn the trust of others. Very interesting title and we have Dennis Henrik with us as a guest. Dennis, welcome back after the commercial break. And you were talking about your book and you were talking about the seven dimensions. I think it's really interesting to take us through the seven dimensions so that we will learn what we can do to empower ourselves and be more confident in the workplace.
3: Okay, that sounds great. Uh, the title of my book uh, is Professionalism 101, and in the book uh, I redefine professionalism as espoused values and practice based on a person's commitment. Their knowledge, skills, and ability, and their action. And I titled it 101 because it is, uh, and its very base, therefore the 101, uh, is what everyone should know and do, basically. Okay. Uh, it's based on trust, and this concept of professionalism is very appealing and compelling. When we hear somebody say, "I am a professional," it infers that we should trust that individual, and that we should also also strive to be trusted. Uh, now, uh, the seven dimensions uh, are basically what I came up from with through my studies, and I did three studies, uh, and it's. I guess I should say that, you know, uh, this Professional 101 is uh, the first qualified and quantified study based on seven dimensions of professionalism across all occupations. And the first study was what they call a content analysis. I know it sounds kind of funny, but basically you read all the books you can on it, and Identify themes, referring themes. And I identified seven dimensions. And those dimensions are identif- identification and commitment, acquire information, use information, involvement, decision making, communication, and cooperation. Okay. And These are based on citizen skills. And in the book, I describe how I came about these citizen skills and what separates the professional from all other occupations and its education. And the purpose of education is to create a learned citizenry, to lead and to be led. And the second study was is what they call an ethnography. Well, wow, I've
2: I, never heard that word. Can you repeat it?
3: Yeah, it's it's called an ethnography. And that's where I went to the uh, University of Iowa Medical School and observed and interviewed medical students as they went through, <coughs> through, the, yes. through the four-year process of becoming a doctor. And that was to identify my seven dimensions, clarify them, make sure that they're right, because once you pull the trigger on on um, these measurements, you want to make sure that they're right. You only have so many bullets when you do these studies, so you want to make sure that every bullet counts. And they were reaffirmed, and after that I created what is uh, what would. it, be a quantitative study, and I created a survey instrument, and it's basically 52 questions. And I measured, you know, I asked pretty much everybody I knew to take the survey, and I had a difficult time uh, garnering the support of medical doctors and uh, uh, lawyers. Uh, the PhDs were easy because they were at school, and they are always willing to help you know, another PhD candidate. Uh, there's a group called the semi-professionals in the academic literature, which are teachers, nurses, and social workers, and uh, that group was easily uh, captured. And then uh, everyone else, I put in a third group, and not to be derogatory in any way, I. Just simply name non-professionals, and I've got lawyers or not lawyers, but architects, engineers, uh, corporate business executives, factory workers, firemen, of course, uh, distribution workers, clerks, pretty much everybody else. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing the uh, the survey, um, I got the response from uh, the doctor's offices that doctors don't do surveys. So I had a couple of uh, medical doctors in my family, and okay. I created a web-based survey and asked them to send it to their friends. And it eventually snowballed, and uh, I started getting respondents from all over the place. And uh, before I knew it, I had uh, a total number of respondents of. 468 and that's good because that's uh, amazing. Uh, you can do a statistical analysis on 120 respondents that's kind of like the base that you want to work from so I had a really good group to go go from here and uh, I uh, did an analysis of, uh, of uh, my measures and it turned out that uh, professionals do work better than semi-professionals and semi-professionals do work better than non-professionals in these seven dimensions. So it reaffirmed my measures and my framework, and I think that if you practice these seven dimensions, you can't do much better than that.
2: (laughs) Okay. I have two questions for you about the seven dimensions. The first question would be, um... Are these steps as useful in your personal life as your professional life? That's question one. Go ahead.
3: I I think they may be because uh, they're based on uh, uh, citizen education. And that's why I wanted to measure the general population. Mm -hmm. And not just one group. So anybody can practice these.
2: Absolutely. Okay. So that's true. And then in the seven dimensions, would you say that, and we talked about this before on the phone together, and I'm really interested in that, is is the, can the seven dimensions be used on the, I'm not sure how to frame this, this question to you, on the framework of the platform, sorry, of every single culture within businesses? Because a small family-owned business, and we did discuss this, and a multinational will treat the employees totally differently. So do the seven dimensions need adaptation depending on the culture of the company, or would you say it's identical?
3: I, I think that these seven dimensions are practiced at the individual level. Okay. And so that uh, I think they could be adapted in the, you know, family business or in the large organization because they exist at that individual level. And okay. when you practice these seven dimensions, uh, you gain trust, you know, from those that you work with.
2: Sure. Okay, so so basically, we're we're back to one question about this talent and distrust. Trusting people on a personal level is already hard enough for all of us to do. It, I think it's getting worse, even that we're having more and more problems doing this. So, how do you create trust? How do you earn the trust of others, and how do you then implement it? Because it's not easy.
3: What would be your
2: advice on that, for the listener?
3: Yeah, you're absolutely correct there. And the trust thing is, you know, often people confuse likability with trust.
2: Yes, absolutely, I agree with you.
3: Yeah, and, uh, you know, likability is more of a subjective, emotional concept whereas trust is based on uh, more rational and objective measures uh, the likability is uh, ego you know I okay. like them I dislike uh, another person kind of thing whereas well let me let me present you with a, a pretty good example of okay. uh, of how you can work this uh, early in my uh, career as a firefighter, I worked for a brief, gruff, mean-spirited fire company officer. And as I worked with him, I learned to trust him because he was a really good firefighter. And the more I trusted him, the more I liked him. And I think that the more he worked with me, the more he liked me.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. So that trust almost Triggers a response of the response of likability. Okay. And another, uh, an academic study that was conducted uh, proved this out. They use the same model of trust that I use. And if we think of uh, our brain as having a rational, objective side and an effective, emotional side, that likability is from that affected side and the rat and the uh, trust is from the rational side, and it turns out that in typical day-to-day operations, firefighters trust in each other is is more effective. You know, based on the relationships, and in high reliability operations where dangers are evident, like in a fire, it's more cognitive. It's. Trust that this person can do the job. Okay, so if you can if you can build that trust, so that they realize that you're you can really work well, then they'll like you better. You know, and likability uh, you know affects that uh, personal side of a relationship.
2: But is it also that the trust is different in a job like a firefighter and a surgeon? I mean, I can imagine that a surgeon's team, you need trust. You need to follow the head leader there in a second. And you were talking about the Army and combat military. You have to trust the instruction that is given. Yeah, yeah
3: it's, it's almost a leap of faith so to say? Yeah. I was
2: almost um, going to say that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But if I'm a secretary um, for um, a not-so-friendly manager, <laughs> I'm thinking of a lot of names, <laughs> it's totally different, right? The the trust level is different, but the manager needs to trust his secretary to get the appointment done, to know that when you're traveling, that that young lady does everything and crosses his I's and dots the T's or exactly the other way around. Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, But do you see what I mean? In that case, it's the manager that has more trust within the secretary and the secretary necessarily has the trust within the manager. Or am I seeing this wrong?
3: Well, I think that, you know, uh, when people work together, there's, let's go back to like when they first work together. Okay. There's a leap of faith and trust that they can both do their work well mm-hmm. and it's only after they produce something of an outcome that there's a feedback to this idea of commitment, their knowledge, skills and ability and their action where sure. that trust becomes elevated. If they... If the outcome is a low outcome, then that commitment is low, the knowledge, the skills and ability and the action that this person can do the job diminishes. So there's a, it's an ongoing feedback loop as people work together. The more they work together, uh, and with greater positive outcomes in their work, the more trust, you know, will be, uh, Elevated.
2: Okay, we're going to go into a commercial break, and when we get back, let's talk a little bit about the communication in the professional workforce, okay? Okay. Stay tuned, everyone. We'll be right back after the commercial break.
4: us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment.
1: Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about.
4: is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
5: Are you a business innovator, or are you just sitting on the sidelines?
1: This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are tuned in to Might Radio. Do you have a question or comment for our show? Perhaps you wish to share your own stories of human kindness. Please send an email to Gabriella Von Ray at gmail.com. That's G A B R I E L L A. V A N R I J at gmail.com. Now, back to Might Radio with Gabriella Von Ray.
2: Hi, everyone, and we're back after the commercial break with Dennis Henrik. And Dennis, one of the things that I feel personally strongly about is communication within the workforce. Because the more you communicate, you don't step on people's toes and uh, whether you are an employee or the um, the employer, you get a chance to do what you were talking about this continuous feedback. But don't people feel that they can't communicate? Um, what do you, What are your thoughts on that?
3: Okay. Uh, first off, you know communication is an interactive process. You have the the act of sending and the act of receiving, and I think where you're going is that, what do you do when you have a boss that isn't receiving or listening, basically? And I think that where we left off that through these positive outcomes of your work performance uh, and this feedback from that, that this trust becomes elevated. And hopefully, in those the situations, uh the boss will start listening or receiving that communication.
2: Okay. Um. Okay. I I understand that on what you're saying, but I think in, in the real practicality it's really hard to do. And someone was just saying to me here during the break that think of everyone that's in it as personal gain, you know, you want to have the, the best idea of the team, and often we are not team players anymore because in an office or in any environment, whether we're athletes or not, we need to team play together. Where If you're not a team, it never works. There's no positive outcome if you're only in it for your own gain.
3: That's correct. You know, many heads are better than one. So
2: how do we we deal with that? Because it's ego and it's also based on money wanting to get up the corporate ladder, right?
3: uh, For some people it is. Uh, For others, uh, work is more of a – well, let me me start with the, the definition of work. And this is from the American Psychological Association. And basically work is an activity that produces something of value for others. So if if we're working, producing something of value, uh that gives us purpose and meaning in our work. If you're okay. work simply for dollars, position, uh prestige, that type of thing, uh mm-hmm. I think that's the wrong idea of, those people have the wrong idea of what work really is, because work is, uh, it provides meaning.
2: Yeah, it does, actually. Can you give me your definition of professionalism?
3: Yeah. Uh I call professionalism uh, espoused values and practice. And it's based on a person's commitment through identification, their knowledge, their skills and abilities, and also their action. And we can only get better the more we do something. The more we experience something, the better we get at it. Um, So that in itself is professionalism. And the commitment, the knowledge, skills, and ability are those seven dimensions.
2: Totally, but in work, then, how how do we have, like I call, a bad apple on the team? How do we make, what advice can you give the listeners right now about, we all know deep inside of us that we have a value to give, but what if we're so stuck in the rut of what we're doing that there's nothing to give? within the job structure? What is it that you can give advice within these seven dimensions? Is there one that we particularly need to focus on to be able to overturn that?
3: Yeah. Uh, what I would say that when a, a group or an organization adopts a few shared and sacred and compromising values, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, like the framework that I uh, talked about at the very beginning, that we only do cool, and everybody agrees with those values, then that becomes the basis for everything we do. Uh, Too many times those values aren't made known. They're just assumed, and people make it up as they go along, and that's when they get caught up in the trap of moving up the ladder as you as you talked about earlier, and they forget why they're there.
2: I and agree. Oh, that is so true, Dennis. Sorry that I interrupted, but I think matter. we do forget why we're there.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, but if you can, if you can uh, get together, like like I said, a small group of people that work together, and mm-hmm. say, "This is what we believe in. This is who we are," and What I'm talking about is maybe, you know, half a dozen at the most and uh, say this is how we're going to work and base our evaluations on each other's performance on those values. (laughs) Then we can improve our our work group performance. We can Mm -hmm. improve our personal performance and hopefully the organization's performance.
2: Okay. Okay. Wow. Listen, Dennis, I could talk to you all day, but we have three minutes left, and I would like to give you the opportunity to tell the listeners where they can get your book, first of all.
3: Okay. Uh, it's sold on Amazon.com, and if you search my name or Professionalism 101, Optimal Performance Within the Work Organization, you can uh, order it there. Uh there's also a link on my website, which is CoolWorks, which is spelled C-O-O-L, W-E-R-X. dot com. Uh, much more of the information is there. You can. Uh, uh, it has a link to Amazon there, and you can also uh, preview several of the topics to see if this is something that you might, you know, enjoy and benefit from.
2: Okay, but another thing that people could do that are listening, whether they're in the workforce or not, is um, contact you for speaking in their organization. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, that would be fine. Yeah, uh, I talk. To, I talk with people, and basically, it's this uh, different model of work, and it's that talent equation, and the book is that professional work piece of that equation, and. Uh, it sets some foundation, well it it starts out with a beginning, which is why, you know, professionalism 101, why it's important. Uh, it has a, a middle piece, which I call groundwork, which kind of, uh, identifies the environment in which professionalism exists. And then the third part is, uh, the professional 101 study. Uh, it, it's the qualified study, it's the quantified study, and it's how to build trust in the uh, work organizations through your practice.
2: I think it's amazing what you're doing because we spend 90% of our lives at the workforce, and I think we need to be happy in it and to have someone like you that we can benefit from your research and your background. And to gain knowledge in living our lives better and um, happier and more fulfilled and to actually know that we have an innate talent and to use it is really incredible, Dennis. I appreciate you coming on my show, and I appreciate what you're doing. And so everyone, i repeat once more, go to coolworks.com, dot com. Dennis, thank you for having, uh, thank you for being on my show.
3: Well, it's been my pleasure, Gabrielle. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Everyone, Mike Radio will be back next week. Tune in then.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week. Mike Radio with Gabriella von Ray can be heard every Friday at noon Eastern Time, nine Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week, and until our next show, think of a random act of kindness that you can perform.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.